welcome everyone. Once again, it is the Smooth Rules Radio Hour, and I am your host, Jason Rutledge. So, a few weeks back, uh, we made some posts on Instagram asking you, our dear listeners, to vote on who has the better movie Camaro, uh, Bobby from Aloha, Bobby and Rose, against a few other contenders. Now, at the time of this recording, those results are about dead even. So, if you haven't checked that out yet and want to voice your opinion, Head over to our Insta at Smooth Rolls Radio Hour and please do so. We'd love to hear from you. Now, in this episode, we're talking about the movie Inside Daisy Clover, the thrills and the dangers of being a child actor, the realities of making movies in the 1960s, and a little bit about the process of adapting books to film. Now, I know that sounds heavy, but it's a good time, and we certainly hope you enjoy your listening experience once again. But first, a little public service message. Now, if you haven't seen it before, Inside Daisy Clover is not a tight 90. The movie is a little long, but please, please, see it all the way through. That's the way Christopher Plummer wants it. It was a big investment. I want it finished. Afterwards, I don't care what happens to you. We mentioned before, Katie, and I'll remind you again, one thing to remember when you see Lair of the White Worm is is based on one of Bram Stoker's last novels. When Stoker was deep in the throes of a horrible syphilis infection that would take his life, so he was not altogether upstairs when he wrote this book, and it definitely... It's good for Ken Russell. Didn't Ken Russell do Devils? Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I still haven't seen either, but from what I've understood is also very... It's the feel-good movie of 1971. (laughs) (laughs) Just ask anyone. I think it's still on Shudder. Maybe I'll do a double bill of those two. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like a good time. There'll be an upswing in spirits as well, I think, after those. Actually, Lair of the White Worm's a lot of fun. It it is. And I, I forgot to watch that. It's like a kind of a... Staples? Once in a while, like Halloween, mm-hmm. I don't want to say Christmas. Christmas. It's a Christmas staple. <laughs> a Halloween staple. That and Gothic, which I fucking love as well. At any rate, I don't know why Jason brought that up. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I know. I don't know. What was I thinking? <laughs> so to start off, I think we should point out the movie we're talking about in this episode takes place roughly between 1936 and 1938. Kind of important because this means it takes place before 1939, which is the year Jackie Coogan got his revenge. Now, Jackie Coogan is mostly known to modern audiences as Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. But before that, he was a child actor who got his start working with Charlie Chaplin. As a child, Coogan earned, we estimate, somewhere around four million bucks, which in today's dollars is about 55 million all of which he thought he was going to receive when he turned 21. However, it turned out that his darling mother and stepfather blew most of it on themselves, claiming that nothing was ever promised to Jackie and that he was, quote, being a bad boy for even asking about it. Coogan sued and eventually got back about $126,000. That lawsuit resulted in the passage of the California Child Actors Bill, otherwise known as the Coogan Act, It guarantees at least 15% of a child's actor's earnings go into a trust that no one else can touch, and it provides some other protections around working hours, time off, and education. None of that, however, was around to help the poor soul at the center of this movie, Inside Daisy Clover. Welcome, everybody, to the Smooth Rules Radio Hour. We are indeed talking about Inside Daisy Clover, 
Uh, Nathan, this was one of your suggestions when I mentioned that we needed something from the 1960s in the lineup. Why this one? What was it? Because I hadn't, I honestly had not heard of this movie before you mentioned it. Really? What was it that, yeah. Me either, but that's nothing new. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, you know, we were, you were looking for mid sixties kind of interesting films and it's not one that it did have a lot of fanfare back in the day, but it doesn't mm-hmm. get really noticed anymore. Right. And it's one of those rarities where it's like it's insider perspective on the film industry, particularly in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. But also it's very reminiscent of the multiple adaptations of a star is born. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you have later films like Sullivan's travels and very introspective about the industry. And it's, it's very interesting and it's got an awesome cast and an, it does as you stated after watching it you said it was a, a bit of a horror film it feels like so a horror it's movie this to very me. interesting movie that you you don't know what you're going to get with it the music stings at the end were very uh horror-esque and i was kind of yeah. like andre oh, Previn. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's weird because you know you feel like okay i'm watching maybe it's a comedy and then round about half an hour into it it just for me it just turns into a horror movie it's bizarre. Exactly a half hour into it. <laughs> when, yeah, the Christopher Plummer character starts making that dream a harsh reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Christopher Plummer, by yeah. the way, playing the part of Raymond Swan. You may also remember him from such classics as Spiral Staircase, Star Crash, Dreamscape, Red Blooded American Girl, and of course, Dracula 2000. Who could forget? Yes. <laughs> but. Rounding out the cast, we also have Natalie Wood, of course, and Roddy McDowell, who were both themselves child actors. I think Natalie Wood started at the age of four, maybe maybe five, just a few weeks before her fifth yeah. birthday or something like that. Robert Redford, who I don't think was a child actor. I don't remember when he no. started. If he was, damn. This is a very early role for him, and mm-hmm. uh, nice little spotlight for him, too. Yeah. It's got an exceptional cast. I mean, Ruth well, Gordon's amazing, amazing in this as Ruth well. Gordon. and such a heartbreaking performance you know and harold gould as the cop on the pier anybody who doesn't know harold gould if you've seen any two episodes of any tv show that was made in the 1970s you've seen harold gould before because he was Uh, in everything yeah character actor extraordinaire yeah also on, on the in the sting and front page but he i don't think he ever had any leading roles in movies he was always kind of that the sting with redford by the way yeah yes yeah, I don't know of any major lead roles um, for him. But yeah, he was one of those valuable assets. You would just put him in a movie or a television sure. series and you don't have to worry. I mean, he'd deliver every time. And you mentioned Ruth Gordon, who we all remember from Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can, obviously. Hell yeah. I think she did some other stuff. Yeah, she did a few other films. <laughs> yes. I mean, who can forget Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby? Of course. Of course. The answer is many people have. Many people forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned there was a lot of, what'd you say? I think you used the word ballyhoo, perhaps, about the movie at the time. This was a December release, if I remember right. So I think it's... Yeah, it had a limited release, I think, and then it went wide in like February, following year 66. Well, that would have been good for them because December of that year, you were up against like Dr. Zhivago and Thunderball which were sucking the life out of everything. Uh, possibly Plague of the Zombies, 
I don't know. <laughs> Might have had something to do with it. Or Doctor Doctor Goldfoot in the bikini machine was still around. Yeah, Doctor that Goldfoot, darn cat. Yeah. Don't forget that darn cat with Roddy McDowell was also in theaters at the time. Yeah, but hey, you know, you watch it, and one of the interesting things is the fact that Natalie Wood is in this role, and she was maybe maybe twenty six, twenty seven when she did this. I think twenty seven, yeah, playing fifteen. Yeah, um, and you think of other actors that might have been better suited and you know one might have been like Haley mills oh. in terms of age but right. i don't she was too squeaky clean of an image with disney at that time that you know yeah, she later did more that. adult fare you know but at that time it wouldn't have happened but i was trying to just think about mm. which one would be good for that role i think it helped to have been in the industry as long as natalie wood had to inform her performance mm-hmm. and it's the other thing that's interesting about this film is the commentary. Do we know how hellacious her experiences were as a child actor? Like, would she relate to that? Or? Natalie Wood herself? I Yeah. The only story I've ever heard is that I forget which movie it was that she was required to cry on cue and wasn't able to do it. So her mother, who had to be there at the oh, time. Oh, I've heard this story. Minor, like destroyed a live butterfly right in front of her to get her to cry on camera. Mm. If that was typical, then yeah, it's pretty horrendous, but I I don't know anything for certain about it. That's just interesting. So few people make that transition from child actor to adult actor, though, that you have to think there's something rotten at the core of that whole system. Well, you pointed out with. You know, two of the people in this film, McDowell and herself, are you know probably two of the best examples of succeeding in this industry and having a career mm-hmm. as a kid and an adult, often people don't even relate the two. Right. You know, you don't think about the fact that Roddy McDowell was a child actor and did movies like my friend Flicka and you know, that kind of stuff. You know, you think Roddy McDowell, you're thinking Shakma and angel four undercover. Oh, yes, Shockma. absolutely. Angel four. Possibly. <laughs> I have Possibly that on laser. Of, so. of course you do. <gasps> and of course his two. Yeah. His two cat She's movies, that, that darn cat and the cat from outer space. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I, I used to watch the cat from outer space when I was a kid. And Legend of Hell House, who he was in, in with another child actress who was in The Innocence with Deborah Carr. And I cannot remember her name now. Pamela. I know you're talking about. Oh, I can't remember her name. Anyway. Remo Williams. So, he was in one of those. What? There was only one of those. Remo Williams. Oh, he's the in the prophecy. TV. He's in mm-hmm. the TV series that uh, one. Oh, that's did. right. Yeah, he's <laughs> actually a good replacement for Joel Gray. Like you could see that dynamic, but at the same time, you're playing Korean. But whatever. Yeah. He didn't do a lot of villain roles. I think of his character in this movie of Bane's as just a straight up evil, malicious snake. You know, everything he says is just dripping with awfulness. Like, even Miss Clover, you'll find your shoes on my table. Just, it, he delivers it in such a way that it sounds menacing somehow. Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced that Baines didn't uh, off the mother oh. in this one, too. It's so interesting. I never well, even, like, that, he drops her off at gave the house his and character like, a second thought, though. He does that smart, that weird, like, have a good night, Miss Clover, and then takes off. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, my God, he killed her. I'm not oh, so I just sure. took it as in, like, <laughs> they clearly look down on these people. Yeah. I never took it as necessarily malicious. So it's interesting that it could be seen in different totally ways. This kind of adds to 
why you think horror movie. Like, I'm not going to say that there aren't things in this that lead to it being a potential horror movie, but that yeah. I never even on a second my mind. On a second viewing, I wasn't even so sure that the dealer mom set fire to her own house. I'm, think, I'm thinking now it's Baines that did that. I can't prove it, but he might have done it. Yeah, there's a lot of exposition <laughs> we don't have, and, I, and unfortunately I've not read um, the but, novel, but, mm. which may expand upon that. I haven't but, read the book um, either. It is, uh, it's interesting, especially like you said, when you do repeat viewings where you kind of read into things, because I definitely mm -hmm. feel as if the Christopher Plummer character, um, Raymond Swan, is is basically, he's very evil at the core, right? Mm -hmm. And, well, one parallel that I've always wondered about, and I've never heard De Palma speak on it, but I'd always wondered <laughs> if the character of Paul Williams in Phantom of the Paradise was somehow inspired his character. I want to believe Swan. that they're related. I want to believe that Swan in Phantom of the Paradise is the grandchild of Swan. Well, he's eternal, movie. though, in Phantom <laughs> of the Paradise, right? Because he sells yeah. his soul. Hmm. To a point, he's eternal, right? Um, but what's interesting about that is it's it's music industry. I mean, yeah. it's totally plausible. He went from film into music. Well, no. That's a really interesting... Same cinematic universe, perhaps. I like that. <laughs> Possibly. It's not a good double bill. There you go. There yeah. you go. A Swanage double bill. Yes, Raymond Swan is an evil bastard, but is he the villain of this movie? Yeah. I think it's Wade. I'm going to say why. Well, I mean, Wade's not... Well, yeah. Wade... That's a whole other can of I mean, both of them are very manipulative, but at least Swan is honest about what he's doing. He doesn't lie to her. When? And Wade does. He tells when? her See, right think, up front. I think... Tells her right I think up front, Swan Katie. is the worst because he's all charismatic about it. And mm -hmm. then when he fucking slaps her in the face, reality comes rushing to her, realizing this fucker does not care about her. He though never did. he's made her to believe that. Remember, Katie, he when he's talking to her on the Angel Pier before they get in the car to leave, when he's saying to her, it doesn't smoke. It doesn't get its hair right. cut I get without that. permission. But the he night never, he first to her is he, it repeatedly. I know, but when he is in the garden with her the mm -hmm. night that his wife has the breakdown over Wade and he picks her it, up yeah. and kisses yeah. her, mm -hmm. like it, it, it gives her that false hope that she is more than an it to him. And that's why I think he is shittier because he wraps mm. it in silk, even though he's a piece of garbage through and through. That's where I get the whole connection to Paul Williams character mm. is the whole, it's like she's bound in blood by contract, mm -hmm. especially that, that scene where she gets slapped by him and he's yeah. basically, you know, Done. And I don't give, I don't care <laughs> what happens to you after this. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've got to complete this. This is you don't you know. cost me. And money, then earlier, money. there's yeah. a scene when he hands her the older contract and says, "Tear it up." Mm -hmm. And that scene, there's so much power in that moment. Mm -hmm. and, and it's get her sister to sign this. Like it's not even. Right. It's like nothing she wants out of it even matters. Right. They wouldn't have. That's a reality for any child actor. Is mm -hmm. you have zero control over what's happening to you. The sad True. part is, so do the same with adults, though. I mm. think there is a, a, a correlation that should be made that in Hollywood, and this goes back to even if you, we were talking about last night in Soho mm. earlier. I don't know if that's going to be 
part of this or not, not, but it kind of goes with that too. Like, this is what you wanted. This is what you asked for. You have to do whatever it takes to get there. It doesn't matter how it affects you or impacts you. This is what you wanted. And it's shitty. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot, even with any age actor, that this film can expound upon. It sucks more for child actors, and I'm Mm -hmm. glad to hear that things got better. (laughs) But, you know, it's it, the, the shittiness is there regardless. You're still the product yeah. of a machine. Big time. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is like, she's also becomes instantly engrossed in this fast moving, moving train where, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like her screen test is extremely elaborate for a screen test. She's all made yeah. up. She's got the costume. Christopher Plummer's character, presumably, although he does know, he acts as if he doesn't know her talent initially when he meets her. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, why did you come to see me? So for it's them to launch into some elaborate dynamic, screen yeah. test, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just very odd. You don't know her vocal capabilities. Well, she sent that, those, the recording. But he acts as if he doesn't true. know that. You know? Right. True, true, true. But that could have been another manipulation tactic, making her think the ball is in her court, even though yeah. it clearly never was from the get-go. It's an amazing scene because he's almost in total darkness when he speaks to her for the first time. Mm-hmm. And she's just presumably alone in this giant soundstage. And of course, wife comes out after that. Speaking of the wife, played by Catherine Bard, who is amazing at this as Melora Swan, it's clear in the movie that she had a relationship. Did a lot of Shakespeare. I can see that. With Wade also. That was a joke. Yeah. Oh, I could. I, she could be. Oh, Bard. Okay. Fuck off. I got there. Nathan. But she you. is boisterous in her acting that I could have seen her being a stage performer. No, I'm just kidding. But, she may have. I don't know. Well, it doesn't matter. It would have been typecasting, though. Let's be honest. Hmm. Well, anyway, <laughs> the question I, that, that I wanted to ask and what I've kind of wondered about, and I'm still not sure about after watching this a few times. How does Wade get to that bedroom? When I first saw this, he and given the way, given the yeah, way he things, was hiding well, from the party. Given the way things played out later, when Melora talks about her previous relationship with Wade, I remember thinking, okay, so Raymond Swan planted him there to put him on Daisy and get hit this guy away from his wife. I don't know. Maybe it's a possibility. He's like I said, he's a manipulative guy. He may have done that on purpose. You know the origin of his character in the original in the book, right? No, I don't actually. So Lambert wrote the screenplay from his own book, mm-hmm. but uh, his character is is gay in the book, like fully. Lambert himself was gay, so he was like one of those kind of like a Charles Lawton type, where he's gay but he has to marry. Ironically, yeah, that's why course, they want to fix him, right? And it's not deliberately mentioned because of you know that wasn't the game back then. They didn't. They just. Right insinuated things lightly um so the change was to make him bisexual so you'd have the whole affair Mm -hmm. with natalie wood's character and and you know his wife as well but you don't really get a lot of exposition as to how he has this separate lifestyle so it's it's just kind of it comes down to one line in the whole movie where she says he never could turn down a charming boy and that's mm-hmm. that's it. I know yeah. that I do know that Redford was pretty upset about that being added in 
that he felt it shouldn't be that explicit. Not that it's incredibly explicit anyway. Back then, though, I feel like it was a bigger deal. Back then in when the film was set. Maybe not as much when the film was made in the 60s, 65, yeah, yeah. So maybe not as much then, but the film is set in the 30s where it would Mm -hmm. have been even more taboo. Probably, yeah. I think there's something to that, sure. But I also don't think they were completely uh, comfortable with exposing that taboo in the 60s either. Like they, they really could have pushed the envelope a little bit more, but I think, you know, that always gets talked about as being scaled back just because of societal norms and not to offend anyone or, but I think another reason maybe is that having written the initial screenplay, going back and reading it as a producer, you might be like, holy shit, this Daisy's life is complete, completely Mm. horrendous. Not only does she, her, her career become a complete nightmare, lose her mother, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But then she marries someone who has no intention of being sexual with her whatsoever. I mean, that's just even darker. For Abandons her. her in the Arizona desert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it also just adds on to the fact that her character has just been dealt every shitty hand possible. Right. Yeah. How do we let lighten this up, you know, at all? Maybe that uh-huh. was a casualty, like script wise. She doesn't, and she doesn't just lose her mother. She has to pretend like her mother is dead for almost a year, and then lose her mother. Oh, like, wow, yeah, that's <laughs> like... all, that that whole scene where he's training her mm-hmm. on what to mm-hmm. say to the paparazzi is horrific. Mm-hmm. And then when they're going through the whole like real explaining her back life uh, tragically lost her dad when she was nine in a train accident blah blah and it's just everything is completely fabricated and yeah i wouldn't i mean i've never wanted to be any a semblance of famous just because i would i think it would be exhausting having no semblance mm-hmm. of privacy or self because you can't be yourself you have to be what everybody else wants you to be and i think this film does a really good job at showing just how much she abandoned who she was to live this quote-unquote dream mm-hmm. and it's heartbreaking it is not they they do make the point when she first meets wade that she had to change everything but her name and his name was the only thing they changed because it wasn't sexy enough that was yeah. the reason yeah, the whole Newsville but, thing where they make up this entire family of ancestors that came over from Ireland or something. It's like, oh my God, this is an elaborate ruse. And they, yeah. this is the only, the really the only complaint I have about the movie is it makes its point over and over and over again. We didn't have to have the whole musical number talking about how fake the circus is. You know, they they kind of like okay i get it. i like that I think, number though. i do too I and do i think too, the repetition it, is important especially with that ladder scene where she has to go over her vocals mm-hmm. yeah that wouldn't have worked as well i suppose so you it also like gives you a, a scope long. of what's at stake here for the production and as to why swan wants this completed because it's i don't know if he he deems this the masterpiece of the studio at the time but he's putting everything behind it obviously so there's higher stakes and you get it you get a vibe of that and that's that's something that reminds me a lot of the Judy Garland version of a star is born where you have these elaborate musical numbers mm-hmm. 
And also the other dynamic there is that you have somebody that's, well, in Judy Garland's case, way too old for the, for the role. But, um, as a, you know, young ingenue, it's not plausible Judy Garland at that age, but it's more plausible with Natalie Wood. But anyway, that's just, it just reminds me of that quite a bit and the darkness of course, as well. Speaking of the, the musical aspect of this movie, Warner brothers was not really doing those kinds of movies that they're portraying in this movie necessarily. Is Warner's taking a shot at MGM here? Well, they were doing musicals. I mean, Meet Me in St. Louis and A Star is Born were in the 50s, but they were they were musicals. So they weren't really doing them in the 60s, that's for sure. But then you're mm-hmm. also making a piece based off of 1930s era right. of filmmaking. So it's kind like, of weren't musicals huge then? Of course. Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and, and certainly, like he said, with MGM, they were like the rulers of the, of the musicals. They would have been doing stuff then. like what? Uh, Gold Diggers of 1935 or something like that? Or, that was their yeah. jam. Universal had monster movies. Warner did gangster movies. MGM <laughs> did musicals. It just came to mind when I'm seeing all this that I'm thinking they're maybe taking a few shots over the bow here, poking some fun at MGM. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, reading too much into it, perhaps. I think they're just, well, I don't know if it's making fun. It's just that's the backdrop of the industry, you know, mm. in that particular vein that she goes into. So there, I mean, it's inevitable. You've got to, you've got to create that fake studio and that, you know, you can compare it to MGM if you want or not. I mean, either way, I don't know that they're commenting on MGM necessarily. I think it's awesome whenever films show that kind of behind the scenes look anyway, because the average person doesn't see or know just what goes into that kind of stuff. So anyone that's going through what she is going through in her normal life without the singing aspect and the acting aspect, whenever you would have to like put that energy in something so repetitious anyway, like no wonder that's what led to her breakdown because it's like, had she not had to go in and do that, she could have probably maybe maintained for a little bit longer in the turmoil that's going on in her brain. But by having to do that scene and watch herself and realize that, wanting to live this lifestyle is what got her and put her through all of this shit anyway. Like I just, that scene was really impactful for me mm. personally. Yeah. There's they they really pull no punches in this. There've been a lot of in those kind of inside Hollywood movies, but I always have to wonder if the Hollywood system is ever truly capable of making an honest movie about itself. There've been glimpses of that throughout. I think what's interesting mm-hmm. about movies like this one or the Oscar or, you know, other films of this ilk is why they were greenlit in the first place. You know, like why would the studio be totally cool with telling this kind of story? You know, it's not mm-hmm. an independent film. No. And that'd be, that'd be more acceptable. I would think, you know, just some independent force making this, but you know, you got to kind of put a, mirror to yourself as a studio whether or not the i mean these studio heads didn't exist with the company back in the 30s but you know mm-hmm. still it's a bold movie to tell as, oh, yeah. a, as a wide release i think especially if those issues were going on maybe not right then but with the care and treatment of childhood actors and all of that mm-hmm. it's kind of like um with the amount of films we have now that are showing stuff that is reminiscent of the me too movement like 
we when the Me Too stuff started happening, we saw more films that were bringing up those topics. And we even got ones that were based on actual stories. So it seems like maybe if that had been going on in Hollywood at that time, this film is going to hit differently then because Mm -hmm. of that, if that makes sense. I could ask him, what what was the trigger maybe that led them to making this one or? Well, it probably would have been when he wrote the book, I guess would be the original point of it. Yeah. And he was a famous screenwriter at the time too. He was in demand. Roman Spring of Miss Stone. I never promised you a rose garden. Yeah. But he had also apprenticed Nicholas Ray for a time, you know, oh. in the, back in the 50s. And it was in demand and, and uh, it was an interesting film, I just think, to come out at that time, particularly with everyone involved, I think. So hmm. not only do you have Natalie Wood on board with this, but you've got someone like Roddy McDowell. And I just wonder what their perceptions on the source material were. Like, did they yeah, this is just a good movie we're doing. Or did they think, oh, this is true to form. This is Don't something know. we've experienced firsthand. But then you also take the child actor out of the equation. And you really still have that same story with like the young ingenue, whether she mm-hmm. was 15 or she was 20 yeah. or whatever. And a lot of the male actors as well, who, you know, once you have somebody under contract, you do what they tell you to do. You don't, I do you, like that they showed both sides of it, that it isn't right. just girl women characters or uh, actresses that this happens to. Yeah, there's other there's other dead bodies on the highway, you know. <laughs> Fame has obligations, Daisy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One of my personal favorite inside Hollywood movies is kind of hard to find, but if you can ever find a copy of What Price Hollywood is made during the 1930s, it's well worth checking out. Inside Daisy Clover has more of a tone, I think, of Mulholland Drive than What Price Hollywood, but it's still worth checking out. One of those great Depression-era sort of movies. Depression in more ways than one? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you could say that. (laughs) Well, it's funny to me that that one you said was made in the 30s, that these problems started then and are still happening now in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. well, that's very Hollywood interesting system. to me. Mm-hmm. No, well, Price Hollywood wasn't necessarily a child actor oriented film, but it was still one of those. But it's still issues well, in Hollywood. Yeah, the title things. alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, did anyone in the whole, uh, I just made note of it and it's just a faux pas, but you know, it actually doesn't matter because you're making a movie about making a movie. So maybe it doesn't matter at all. But when in that scene where she's has the mirror and it's the musical number and then she walks through the mirror and it's the other actor and then she's performing, but they're doing different gestures at the same time. Yeah. You can see Natalie Wood's shadow clearly in front of the crew behind her, which she's not supposed to. But okay, you can just forget it. It's a movie within a movie. It wouldn't have been in frame probably for the movie that they were shooting. What are you talking that. about? I was like, are you asking a question? Like, <laughs> no, I'm just stating know. it. I was like, <laughs> you know, they tried everything else to frame it perfectly, but yet her shadow is inevitable. It's there on the floor. Oh, okay. But would it have been in the thing they were recording shot? That's what I'm saying. It, it oh, makes okay. no difference probably because this isn't a movie where they're trying to hide that. They're, you don't see the actual matted frame right. of the film hmm. that they're doing. So, oh, okay. like I said, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> so you both 
first time watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you dug it. Jason has to have. You've seen it like ten times now. The uh, only two. thing that got <laughs> on me is it felt like it was ten hours long to me, and maybe it's because I watched it so early. But the pacing is very no, it's a long peculiar. Movie. I mean, it's only two hours, but it feels like four hours. It takes its time. So that yeah. was my only like. I paused it at one point, and I was like, I still have an hour and fifteen minutes left. <laughs> like, how did that happen? But it's very yeah. good. Like I never was like I regret watching this or anything, which is a good thing. It's just this close to feeling like it should have an intermission stuck in it somewhere. It, it, right. It, it yeah. feels like a, a definitely long. Definitely feels that's, like a long. That's movie. yeah. Again, that's another reason I it reminds me of the Garland uh, Star is Born, which was like almost three hours, and that did have an intermission, and mm-hmm. it kind of feels like it was after a musical number, if the memory serves, and it. When you're watching this, you must almost expect for it to be there, but it's not. Also, that would have been very much in vogue with the the films of the 30s if they had just prompted an intermission in there. And maybe they did theatrically. Maybe we don't know that. Maybe it was separated. Some some alternate cut of Inside Daisy Clover out there somewhere? <laughs> well, they usually cut those intermissions when they put them on video anyway, you know. Especially if it was back in VHS days and you had two tapes to tell the movie, you know. Oh, the good old days. My Blu-ray copy of Lawrence of Arabia kept the overture and intermission intact. Yeah. How could you not? Well, now, yeah, now everybody's restoring everything and you want to, I like that. I prefer that, you know. Plus, when you you got a killer soundtrack like that, you got to play it out. I mean, what's another... 15 minutes for Lawrence of Arabia, you know? No, that's, that's, yeah. It's like pocket change. Just throw it in there. Who cares? You got nothing else you're going to watch yeah. today. How do we feel about the ending of this movie? I, I mean, like is, the is ambiguity it supposed to of be it. Funny? Is it supposed to be sad? I don't know. Exactly. Are you talking about the suicide for? attempt or the explosion? Both. Or both. Well, I took it as in, well, not the suicide part, but the um, blowing up the house part mm-hmm. that she's going to just take the reins back on her own life. Yeah. Like, and right. I, I kind of hate that they don't show the resolve there, but then I also kind of like that they don't show the resolve because then you kind of can just fabricate whatever you want on that. Mm. Yeah. It's up in the air, but like the, like the suicide attempt is almost comical. They're playing it for laughs. Yeah. I mean, the phone rings. She's like, fuck, I got to answer the phone. You know. When the lady put the phone back on the hook and then the phone started ringing again, that was funny. It it just yeah. feels like after the previous hour and a half or so of the movie that that's a weird place to want to try to land. Yeah, but you end, also kind of need some levity maybe, you know? Mm. When it just shows the absolute ridiculous hand that life has thrown her way. Like, no matter what she tries to do, she cannot get her footing on any decision that she's trying to make on her own. Maybe So she, it kind of adds yeah. to that. Nothing Maybe has panned after, out. After the house blows up and she walks off the beach and fulfills her dream of taking up cooking and learning how to do something besides fish burgers. Who knows? Fish burgers and beans. And hot chocolate. Yeah, mm, that, yeah. Stunning that's... Stunning combination. That's going to be a rough <laughs> evening. Disgusting. I know. I don't want to see that recipe. You had me at the fish burgers. You lost me at the hot chocolate. I'm sorry. See, I, yeah. I'm there for the hot chocolate. Not the hot steaming pot of fish burgers or whatever the hell is supposed to be in there. I don't, I don't eat fish. 
That is the only reason. Because other than that, every time I saw the fish and chip sign or the shrimp and chip shot sign, I was like, man, that sounds good. Yeah, have you either of you see any parallels in any current films to this one? Last Night in Ooh. Soho. Hmm, kind of. That's one of those be careful what you wish for sort of films, sure. Yeah, like yeah, it's the, a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a mention of Black Swan. Yes, this. and I was curious mm. if if he had any influ- Aronofsky had any influence from this film, kind of like what you were saying with Inside Jennifer Wells. No, the Paradise, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Like, is it yeah. just uh, like a little? Like, clearly, it's not about ballet. Yada yada. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does make you wonder if he's ever said, "Oh, yes, I got because he." The, the yeah, you get what I'm saying. I would assume so. I mean, we no great art is made in a vacuum, and they everything can influence anything. That is true, so. but a lot of people you have ones that are very like staunch on being like this influence this this did this but i feel like aronofsky is very quick to sometimes sweep his influences under the rug Possibly. when he's, it's he's almost as, a uh, direct take from it i recently watched like paprika and yeah. uh dear god that's just inception so it's like dear god was greg kinnear wasn't it <laughs> i love greg kinnear no, Aronofsky is not as upfront about his influence as, say, Bruno Mattei or any no. of your Italian directors who just blatantly steal oh, yeah. shots from other movies. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's highly influenced by Italian directors as well. Yeah. I think we can all think of one in particular for Black Swan. But anyway, um, hmm. yeah. It just watching this made me think of, you know, Britney Spears getting out of her conservatorship and how the Disney machine functions just like Raymond Swan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this very chew them up, spit them out sort of a process. Okay, once you're not cute enough to be on the show, bye. You're on your own. Yeah, yeah. That's an it's, interesting parallel. It might not be that bad, yeah. but it's it's probably pretty bad. Well, it's like the whole Britney Spears thing is. It's almost like a uh, that's almost like a fable in a way, like gone horribly wrong. Like you, when you tell mm-hmm. people like an amazing influence for several years, and that's like almost forgotten now. Mm-hmm. Right, and to, that's that's a perfect example of someone being completely swept under the rug because of all her crazy shit going on with the family and her management sure. and all that. But yeah, it's 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 definitely a case of chew them up, spit them out. Like this Daisy Clover character was amazing for a minute, but we've moved on to the next hot thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he even says that to her, yeah. almost word for word. That'll mm-hmm. be more like you. I was also thinking of uh, who's the who's the actress from iCarly, Jeanette McCurdy. Yes, that's who I'm thinking. Who's of. not on the new one? Yeah, right. I've watched a few of those in preparation for this episode, and it's like, oh yeah, this nothing has changed. I mean, there's some protections in place, but realistically, I think there's legal and like physical mm-hmm. protections in place. But I think that a lot of shit happens is mental and that is never taken into account it seems like and i think this shows that pretty well maybe not honestly the physical side of it is not because she's basically a revolving door to these men and i thought that was an interesting Mm -hmm. thing consider like i love that they i forgot to mention this i love that they acknowledge the whole jailbait thing because at yeah. first I thought like nothing was going to be said, and I was like, "It goes oh, by really so fast." But they whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, the way it impacts you or the way it's going to impact me. Like, mm. because I even tried to Google, like, how old is Wade? Like, how old is he meant to be? But it just, yeah. They never, it's but never I, very clear, but he's clearly older than 15. So Yeah, I would say a good 10 years, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, he's been in the industry for a while, too. Mm-hmm. So he's done this cycle already and he knows every beat of this drum and this is him basically like taking someone under his wing in a way and at first i thought what it was gonna be yeah at first i thought it was just gonna be like oh shit i know what she's gonna go through let me make this you know Mm -hmm. less hard on her Uh and uh nope it got it got weird well, the other thing too is it's I and I question why they didn't bump her age up just a little bit, just based off the fact that you have somebody older playing the character. I don't mm-hmm. think it would have affected the movie. You still would have been a jailbait scenario if she was seventeen. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that might have been if they're going to make the change with the Wade character. Mm-hmm. Why not bump that up a little bit too? But yeah, hard to say. No, watching this made me think of Drew Barrymore and everything that happened with her. It made me actually remember um, Anna Paquin when she was up for an Oscar. I think she was 12 years old for the piano. And her remark that, how is this possible that there's someone out there who makes cocktail dresses for 12-year-olds? Yeah. But then if you think, and this (laughs) this may seem like a stretch, but look at the treatment of girls in the whole toddlers and tiara thing. Oh yeah. Ugh. I mean, that's why cocktail dresses exist for 12 year olds. Yeah. I mean, we always play this don't sexualize children aspect in things, which facts you shouldn't, but then it's, it's such a double edged sword, vicious circle of what came before, you know, the, the cart or the horse. I realized I wanted to talk, a certain way and then I realized I didn't want to talk about it (laughs) because it can be such a a hairy topic in the sense and it even goes on with adult women of the whole Mm. you get what you deserve because you were dressed like that or this happened to you because of this and it's like there is no it's not the fault of the victim you know what I mean yeah it's like it's such a weird yeah. yeah and it shouldn't be but that's that's the universe that we're in as yeah yeah <laughs> and that's another thing about this movie is it it makes a lot of claims but it's also pretty vague and it kind of leaves you up to your own devices to come up with what you think certain scenes mean or you know they're mm-hmm. not as in your face or deliberate and you know that's also filmmaking of another era too not everything had to be overly explained yeah you know it, it was just what do you take from this? They were a bit more trusting of their audience. Yeah. In a way that a lot of movies aren't now where we're going to explain to you exactly what Freddy Krueger did. Oh God. Can you imagine <laughs> seeing this remade now? Oof. I, oh yeah. There would be nothing left unturned. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It would be a horror anytime movie. soon, but <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We're all just like, ugh, like, <laughs> Let's let's just leave this movie alone. Let's not remake this. <laughs> well, you know, there's not a lot of they don't make these type of movies anymore either. I mean, you have movies about the industry occasionally, mm-hmm. but you know, it's never out and out Hollywood. I get what no, you're. I, I see what you're more, saying. 
it's something like the player or that's just kind of yeah. almost a cartoon version. Right. It's satire. Yeah. And yeah. not, and it's accelerated not actual serious reality. Like right. we need to acknowledge we have a problem kind of a movie, which I don't think they would ever do. I think that, well, that was a, Apollo 13, right? Yeah. But, um, Houston. well, you know how much I like to throw out Apollo 13 quotes. So yeah. And Ron Howard. <laughs> Ron Howard rules. He's awesome. Eat my dust. Occasionally. <laughs> I like him as the narrator in Arrested Development. You know which movie of his I'd never watched back in the day? And I kind of just was like, meh, I'll get to it. And, it. and it's certainly a movie of that era. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> but now I want to mo- know what movie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those ensemble pieces with every acclaimed actor available in one movie. And it's The Paper. Oh, it's Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton, Marissa yeah. Tomei, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid. I've heard of that. It's a great Wasn't little that, movie. That was about the same know? time. It's a great when, little movie. He, yeah. Did Sorry. he also make City Hall? Like... Did, did he also do City Hall or was that somebody else? No, he those didn't movies do that, came right. out right around the same time. Yeah, there was a there was a point where you were just like, I'll see that at the Dollar Theater, and you just never did. Never did. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it yeah. either. But I mean, I mean, hey, Clint Howard's in it, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know that's a selling point. It, well, it is kind of difficult to make exciting movies about newspapers. But yeah, yeah but I it's, mean, it can be done. <laughs> I, I, I like dig those that. types of films. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting look. And it's a 24 film, hour scope mm-hmm. that the film has. Oh, so I like that, that too. Yeah. I just like when mediums, whether it's film, books, whatever, make you look into the lives of something that you don't do. Right, you know the what machinery I mean? like, of it all. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of does tie in with what we watch. And I think why that one scene is important because the average person doesn't know how films are made, you know? So it's interesting. You know yeah. what movie did that that I loved? I watched for the first time a couple years ago, Singing in the Rain. And I just thought oh, it was yeah. really interesting and so beautifully made. And it shows that side that you wouldn't normally... Mm-hmm. Think yeah, about the curtain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love that film. Oh, it's, it it deserves every accolade it gets. It it was fantastic. And to tie it in with this movie, have either of you seen Legal Eagles, starring mm-hmm. Robert Redford? Yes. Where he and Deborah Winger Deborah walk Winger. singing yeah. in the rain on television <laughs> separately in their apartments, and they're on the phone talking about it, and it's a oh, great scene. They do that in When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, but they did it first here in Cleveland. Yeah, so. yeah, but I love when Harry Met Sally. I do too. I absolutely love that movie. But Legal Eagles doesn't get enough fanfare, so I'm putting it out there. I've never it heard doesn't. of it. I'll look it's it up. Ivan Reitman movie Reitman. right after yes. Ghostbusters, and of course, in between Ghostbusters one and two, and Twins was in there as well, so it gets forgotten. Who? Terrence Stamp, also mm-hmm. Daryl Hannah, featuring a hit song by Rod Stewart, "Love Touch." Thank you very much. That was the title. Love touch. Thank you very much. No, that's my, my, <laughs> when I mention it, that's how I have to say it. Okay. Love touch. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> so inside Daisy Clover, it's, I don't know if how rewatchable it is, but you should be seen at least, you know, watch it a couple of times. Cause you're going to get something it should different be seen, out of it. Like in general. Yeah. Yeah. It is rewatchable there. I have like a, uh, repeat function on my DVD and you can just play it again. Of course you do. <laughs> nice. Okay. I thought everyone had that. Okay. I don't use a DVD player anymore. Oh, look at you. Oh, fancy. 
And they don't have that on consoles. No, I use my PlayStation or Xbox. Oh, okay, okay. I still use discs. I very much still like physical media. Yeah, particularly the Olivia Newton-John variety. Mm. Yes, I get it. <laughs> like the 45 of physical. Anyway, um... <laughs> Why won't it or the 12-inch if you want the extended mix, yeah. But Inside Daisy Clover is available on streaming for now and can get it through the Warner Video Archive, which is where I got it, on Blu-ray. The Blu-ray edition is pretty sparse. I think it comes with a cartoon as an extra feature. And the trailer. Would love to hear this with some commentary from film. Any film historians want to jump on that? That would be great. Yeah. We didn't mention Robert Mulligan, by the way. And he's not around to talk about that film. Well, that, anyway, yeah, anyway. that would stop him from doing the commentary. Sir. Yeah. 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 I doubt Redford would. No, I mean, he does retrospective interviews and stuff about films, but I've never. I don't know that I've heard him on a commentary track. No. I mean, if they're going to do a retrospective interview with Redford, it's going to be about like the candidate or downhill racer or things like that. I, I wouldn't see this one coming up. The candidate. Yeah, definitely. Or all the president's men. He's mm-hmm. done that. The sting, of course. Right. Right. He even did a retrospective commentary on, uh, electric sting too. Oh. oh, no, 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 no. Sneakers. No, you wish. I w- yeah, I do wish, but who knows? Maybe someday that'll happen. I don't know. I, I would love to see. He more. used to do private commentaries for sneakers whenever Air Jordan ads would be on the television. <laughs> like, yeah, there's another one of those Air Jordan ads. Jordan ads, yeah. Just wanted to comment on that. That's a wrap. We'll we'll put Nathan in the ADR booth, and he can loop all the rest of his dialogue. It'll be okay. I hope I don't get traumatized by doing We're just, that. We'll just keep playing this episode over and over and make you redo all your all your lines. It'll be okay. Again. <laughs> Again. Again. But with that, we'll draw this episode to a close. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, take this job, son. I'm not working here no more. Yeah, my woman done left. She took all the reasons I was working for. Well, that's it. Another smooth and thrilling episode has come to a close. Thank you so much for listening. The Smooth Thrills Radio Hour is a production of Ghostcraft and is recorded live in Dallas, Texas. Please email your questions and comments to autopilot at smooththrillsradiohour.com or drop us a message on Instagram, whichever you fancy. Enjoy the rest of your day. But had a lot of bills to pay, and I'd give the shirt right off of my back if I had the guts to say, Say what? Yeah, take this job, son. I'm not working here no more. Yeah, my woman done left, and she took all the reasons I was working for. This has been a Ghostcraft presentation.